This is Fantastical Truth. In this podcast from Lorehaven, we find truth in fantastic stories and we seek to apply this truth in the real world that our creator and savior, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher, and today's episode, like the last episode, shall be a unique one. And I'm Zachary Russell, but all my zombie friends call me Zach. This is episode 20. What if a space plague turned the Amish into zombies? And this is a clip from Amish Zombies from Space, the audiobook. This is a really unique episode. Like Stephen said, we are going to go right in to a chapter from this book in audio format. And this book is from the Peril in Plain Space series by Carrie Neitz. Uh, Carrie Neitz started the series when he took a joke title for a book and he turned it into a fun yet serious exploration in a sci-fi universe called, infamously and famously, Ambish Vampires in Space. Uh, that actually went pretty viral based on the title alone. And at one point, uh, he even got uh, 15 seconds of fame when late night host Jimmy Kimmel held up a copy of the book on national TV. If you want to see more about that, uh, even the photo, uh, we will do our best to link that in the show notes. However, the series continued. Those Amish in space could not catch a break. Uh, they fought vampires first and next they had to undergo. Why not a zombie plague? Actually, book three features another one from the uh, Universal Pictures roster of terrible Halloween creatures, werewolves. Why not? <laughs> oh, this is such a fun series. So uh, last year, I reached out to Carrie. I, I wanted to know more about this and kind of what inspired it. So we, I had a really good chat with him. And then he told me something surprising. He had gotten support from just regular old Amish fiction writers. So just the normal Amish or Amish romance books you'd see at the Christian bookstore. Some of them, you know, didn't appreciate the joke that he's kind of doing here, but some of them did. It, it was, so it was pretty cool to see how he made some really solid connections in that that writer's community. Because if you're wondering, listener, uh, Carrie himself is not Amish. <laughs> so if you're wondering if or hoping if this is going to be some kind of takedown of the Amish community, you know, that's not Carrie's intent either. Carrie is a very solid Christian brother. And like Stephen said, he took this idea seriously. And everyone, it always surprises everyone when they read it. They think it's going to be like the Christian fiction version of Sharknado or, or something just ridiculous, like campy kind of thing. And of course, you know, the title is a little provocative, but Carrie takes this idea very seriously. And this is, uh, this, I think we think you're going to really like this book. Well, it's actually a rather common sci-fi trope uh, to have a group of people on a colony in space who themselves are not very space travel oriented. They get dropped off and then they try to build a new life as a colony on this terraformed or Earth-like planet uh, where they are living a rural life. They don't have electricity. There's no phones, no lights, no motor cars, not a single luxury. And that's where Carrie starts with Amish vampires in space and then has some similar themes as well in, uh, in this sequel here. The Amish do have a provision for you know, working with people who are not Amish, uh, Englishers, I believe the term is, in order to help them get from one point to another uh, in space. And uh, Carrie kind of uh, took, took with that idea and ran, ran with it and did a lot of research. So anyway, uh, let's move on to the excerpt from Amish Zombies from Space. It is narrated by Randy Strew. We catch up with the Amish settlers on their new planet following the events of book one, Amish Vampires in Space. On this new planet, a certain undead type plague is about to begin. Our thanks, of course, goes to Carrie Neitz for sharing this audiobook excerpt from Chapter 8 of Amish Zombies from Space. 
which is book two of the Perils in Plain Space series. Chapter 8 They stood like that for a long moment, staring at each other across the silent grass. Mark's hand was still raised in greeting, and the man continued to smile. Despite the visitor having broken the law, it felt like a good start. The landing seemed more like a crash, after all, like something that couldn't be avoided. Hello there, Mark said finally. Are you injured? The man said nothing. He instead made a pained hooting sound and began to amble Mark's direction. His gait was broken and disjointed, unnatural. The movement brought both legs into view. The right leg was more injured than Mark originally thought. There was a large chunk of flesh missing on one side. He thought he glimpsed the whiteness of bone. He couldn't believe the man wasn't bleeding heavily. He should be. Mark had seen animal attack victims before, injuries just as severe. The leg should be gushing blood, especially under the stress of motion. Mark raised both hands in caution. You are injured, he said. You need to stop right there. You'll bleed to death. The man continued to move toward him. Mark waved his hands together and repeated his warning. They went unheeded. In fact, it seemed like the man sped up. Mark felt distressed. He'd seen his share of deaths already. He didn't want to see another, especially not here where there was little he could do. He wasn't sure he could help the man across the river, much less carry him. The man was about 40 feet away, but still hadn't said anything. Mark recalled the Englisher Liza and her speaking device. Did this man not speak standard? Was he deaf? He noticed the man's face. His eyes were wide, almost maniacal. His mouth was open and his tongue was hanging out like a dog after a long chase. The man started to growl. It wasn't a growl of pain, though. It was more animal, visceral, a cry of hunger. Mark was struck by another memory, that of the vampires attacking during the trial. They had appeared human at first. Was it possible? Did they somehow make it here? The man's vocalizations became more frantic the closer he got. His hands raised and he groped the air. His nails were splintered and gray. Mark's concern turned to dread. If nothing else, the man was Narish. Crazy. Mark ducked behind the nearest stand of trees and sprinted toward the river. The man howled, but Mark didn't look back. He focused only on making his way through the long grass. After he'd gone maybe a dozen steps, he glanced back and saw the visitor rounding the trees as well. The man seemed more desperate and closer. Mark scanned the brush near the river, looking for the place where he'd crawled through. There were more birches than he remembered. How had he not noticed that? Where was his mark? He checked the ground. There should be traces of his passage, tracks, or broken grass. He heard another sound, a strange yelp behind him on the left. He saw a dark shadow moving in the grass there, an animal of some sort. Was something trying to cut him off? He quickened his pace and continued to scan the brush line. Finally, he saw the place where he'd stripped the bark. He headed straight for it. There was another yelp and a burst of motion on his left. Mark swerved right as a woolly red creature leapt toward him. Its jaws snapped twice near his neck and chest. Its breath smelled of death. The creature hit the ground hard, but then recovered and turned, placing itself between him and the river. It was a dog, but clearly nobody's best friend. Its hair was long, yet matted in many places along its back. Part of its mouth was missing, and its eyes. 
Its eyes were bloodshot and yellow. Wicked. Mark froze, unsure of what to do next. The man was still coming. Mark could hear retching groans behind him. They sounded close. Mark raised both hands and waved them at the beast. Der Herr rebuke you, he said. The dog leapt at him again. Mark ducked and pushed at it with his forearms. Somehow he managed to divert it, to push it left, but it snagged the arm of his shirt. It wriggled its head, tearing and pulling. Mark was jerked off balance, nearly tripped, but then his shirt ripped. The dog fell back, holding a chunk in its mouth. Mark dove for the opening between the birches. Branches scraped his arms and legs, but he didn't care. He forced his way through. All he could think about was his pursuers, about them catching up and possibly infecting him. His heart pumped in his chest, sweat dripped down his brow. His feet slipped multiple times, yet somehow he made it to the river unmolested. He found the downed tree and pulled himself onto it. He started to crawl ahead. He heard the infected man howl and movement in the brush behind him. The dog made a snarling lunge at his trailing leg. It nipped at him, hit the ground, then jumped and nipped again. It was all Mark could do to keep himself out of reach. He turned on his back and crab-walked backwards, kicking with his right foot as he went. The dog dropped back and circled around to the other side of the tree. Mark was a few feet over the river now. He glanced down at the waters. They seemed extremely turbulent, with jagged rocks that he hadn't noticed before. The dog snapped at his left foot. Mark swung the foot clear and continued the motion, turning completely over. He scrambled forward on hands and knees. Another snarl and the branches moved behind him. Next came the scraping sounds of the dog's claws on the tree's surface. It was right there, right behind him. Mark pushed ahead, lost his grip, slipped but somehow recovered. He tried to stand, to simply run. There was a growl and a weight hit his back. He dropped to the tree and braced for the pain to follow. He felt the animal's breath on his neck. He pitched and tried to swing a hand at it. The weight fell away, followed by a splash and a woofing grunt. He saw the dog in the waters below him. It was not attempting to swim. It was sinking, drowning, yet its eyes stayed locked on him, yellow and cold. The strangeness froze him. The current slowly dragged the beast away. There was another moan. The infected man was at the end of the tree, glaring at Mark. He began to hiss and growl, but he didn't attempt to climb. He only paced as if he'd been cheated and raised an injured arm to point. Mark looked away, fixed his eyes on the other side, and crawled. The miller's store seemed like a slice of heaven to Greels. On the left side, as he entered, was a long counter and display case. Below the counter, arranged in colorful baskets and sealed with plastic, was one bakery treat after another. Plump, shiny rolls and large cookies, followed by cakes and fruit pies. He especially liked the pies. The ambient smells were wonderful too, heady and warm, mixtures of goodness, nothing like the ship food he used to eat. A far cry from the slop they gave him in prison, better than anything he'd smelled in a long, long time. In fact, he almost wept. On the right side of the store were large floor-to-ceiling shelving. These were stained a light color and filled with varieties of jams, spreads, and butters. Some of these he couldn't believe were legal in the galaxy anymore. They made him feel heavy just for looking at them, but he didn't care. He felt happy and hollow at the same time, lacking yet feeling the glow of something very special. 
He stood and tried to figure it all out. In the middle of the store was a comfortable-looking lounge area. There were wooden tables and chairs, softened with overstuffed pillows. Two couches were positioned near a stove that appeared to be functioning, though it was probably only a prop. The weather in this part of Obelisk never got that cold, thankfully. He'd spent the previous night on a park bench, the nearest need shelter being over full. He wasn't proud of that fact, but it was what it was. At least he hadn't gotten jumped again. In the back of the store were rows of wooden furniture tactfully displayed. Even from where Greel stood, he could tell it was all solid and well-crafted. Shelving, bedroom furniture, tables and chairs. Normally, he would say that whatever machine Jeb Miller used did an amazing job, but Greels doubted there was much machinery involved at all. Probably all handmade. He shook his head. He was used to tingle suits and force fields. How was he going to work here? A small boy entered the shop from the back and started jogging between the furniture, weaving through it like a maze. The boy was blonde-haired and probably no more than five years old. Part of Greels worried that the kid might hit his head on one of the table edges. The other part thought that might be a good way to learn, so he just watched. A few moments later, the child stopped and, noticing Greels, walked straight toward him. He dragged a hand along the top of one of the central couches on the way by. Who are you? the boy asked. Greels found himself crouching down. Greels, he said. Is that your first name or your last? Greels smiled. These days it is both. It sounds like a monster name. Are you a monster? Isaac. Greels turned and saw Sarah Miller behind the bakery counter, an embarrassed look on her face. There was a doorway into the store there as well, he noticed, doubtless leading to wherever the baking was done. His stomach growled. He'd really like to go there right now. I'm sorry, Mr. Greels. Isaac knows better. Sarah waved a hand. His head is filled with some strange toys and ideas. We try to divert him, but sometimes it is difficult. Greels stood, noting the new areas of pain. Though his injuries looked healed from the outside, on the inside there was still more mending to do. Are you all right? Sarah asked. Greels forced a smile. Oh yeah, I'm as fit as I'm going to be. Just getting older. Well, you're in good company. She put a hand out for Isaac, who moved toward the counter. Can I have a roll? the boy asked. Sarah shook her head, seemingly ignoring the request. Can I please have a roll? She looked at Isaac and smiled. Better said that time, but I think you've had enough for now. She looked at Greels. Would you like something? I know it is after breakfast, but... A roll would be great, thanks. Greels drifted toward the counter. The smells got even more intense. His mouth became noticeably moist and his stomach growled again. Sarah raised an eyebrow and, reaching below the counter, produced two large rolls. She placed both on a small plate. You know, I think I have some leftover ham back there from lunch. Would you care for some of that, too? Greel smiled. I won't complain if you bring it. Sarah nodded and indicated the lounge area. Find a place over there. I'll bring you something. She looked at Isaac. Keep Mr. Greel's company and be polite. Greels walked to one of the chairs paused and glanced down at his pants. They were a little rough-looking. Fairly clean, but he didn't know what he'd picked up from the bench. He sat on the edge of the chair, pushing the cushion back behind him. He smiled as the kid walked near. You're not sitting on it right, Isaac said. Greels already had a bite of roll in his mouth. What? He chewed heavily. What's that, um, kid? Isaac. He smiled. Isaac. Sorry, I'm not around kids much. Never had any that I know of. 
Greel stopped himself and waved the roll in the air. Sorry, didn't mean that. The boy squinted. You know, with the kids and never... He took another bite, shook his head. Anyway, your name is Isaac. I got that. You know, you have a good mom and dad. They're real nice people. Isaac nodded. We found you on the street. You were hurt bad. Greels sighed. Yeah, I was. Real bad. Good thing you found me when you did. Isaac pointed at Greel's posterior. You're crushing the seat cushion. Mom doesn't like it when you do that. Greel's glanced behind him. Oh, the seat. Is that what you were talking about before? He shrugged, starting on the second roll. I don't want to muss it. My pants are... Sarah re-entered and Greel's stood again, feeling relief. I'm sorry about the cushion. I didn't want to... He looked around him. I mean, it is all so pretty, so nice. Sarah smiled and handed him another plate containing a large ham and cheese sandwich and a pickle. Don't worry about anything in here, she said, exchanging plates with him. Isaac had beaten most of it up already. Yeah, kids, right? Greels gave the boy a wink. He wasn't a bad little person, probably a little misunderstood, just like Greels had been when he was that age. Any age, actually. Greels took a bite of the sandwich. More heaven. He shut his eyes for a moment, reveling in it. Mmm. That's really good. He gave it a little shake. You've got something fine here. Yeah, I can see why it all works. Jebediah entered the furniture portion of the store and, smiling, came their way. He was dressed in blue denim and a light blue t-shirt. Greels hadn't noticed it before, but the guy had muscles. Made sense, pushing around all the wood. Jebediah put out a hand. It is good to see you again. You're looking better. Greels put down the sandwich, wiped his hand on his pants, and took Jeb's hand. Are you ready to start? Jeb asked. I have some deliveries to make, he pointed at the sandwich. You can bring that with you. The mechanicals do most of the driving. We'll just ride along. Give us time to catch up. He turned and began to walk toward the back of the store. Greels whipped his sandwich at Sarah and Isaac. Sorry to... Sarah smiled. This is how it is now. Jebediah always has a mission. Jebediah climbed into the left seat of the shop's delivery transport. The transport front compartment was mildly reminiscent of his Amisher carriage back on Alabaster. It had a wide window for viewing what was ahead, and there were seats, three to be exact. That was where the similarity ended, though. The entire interior was a muted shade of green, and the doors were made of a light yet dent-resistant plastisteel. The seats had the ability to swivel, and the seating surface was made of a substance that naturally conformed to one's posterior, a welcome feature for longer trips. Externally, the transport was a box-like vehicle with a number of self-loading features for the back storage compartment. The back compartment was nearly full. Jeb hoped the day wouldn't prove to be too much for his new assistant. The other door opened, and Greels attempted to pull himself in. He struggled a few moments, grimacing, before Jebediah touched the release for his own door. Greels narrowed his eyes. Don't you do it. He lunged upward into the seat, righted himself, and closed his door. I'm a little sore still, not crippled. Jebediah nodded and laid a hand on the starting control at the end of his right armrest. The transport elevated and began to move slowly backward. The truck was kept in a narrow loading area behind the shop. It would have been difficult to get out were it not for the fact that the vehicle did the driving. Greel's eyes widened as the vehicle rose even further, then watched as another parked vehicle, one the transport had elevated over, appeared beneath the front portion of the truck. Nice these can do that, he growled. Vertical still seems strange to me under gravity, he smiled. I guess it was a larger adjustment for you, though, huh? 
Jeb swiveled his chair to look more directly at Greels. There were many adjustments, he said, but the Lord helps our shortcomings. He nodded at the panorama of buildings outside. None of this is over his head. None of it surprises him. Greels squinted. Are you Amish yet? I mean, this vehicle, you don't really need to operate it, so I guess you could slide that one by. He smiled. Just like you had us flying you on the Raven, right? He indicated the window. But you have to operate a lot of mechanical stuff, a lot of electrical stuff to survive in this city. Jab nodded. I used to question our place. Sometimes I still do, but the experience on your ship, the technology proved morally neutral. Greels coughed a laugh. Technology created the problem, brother. Yes, and it was part of the solution as well. Jeb watched as the transport took them within inches of another vehicle before changing skylanes. That was close. Greels nodded. I'm trying not to look. Jeb chuckled. But to answer your question, no, we're not Amish. But we are still believers, still followers of the Lord, and that's all the identity we need. Greels frowned and turned to look out the window to his right. A full minute of silence went by. Jeb used the time to covertly study Greels. Though he looked improved, Greels still appeared fatigued. It was doubtless too soon for him to be working, but he'd insisted. Greels shifted in his seat and crossed his arms. Did you have a... He cleared his throat. That thing on the ship, did it mess with you? Like, have you seen stuff that sort of reminds you... Jeb remembered the delivery machine from his nightmare and the dark creature. Sometimes, yes. Greels raised an eyebrow. Yeah? Like what? Jeb checked the distance meter on the console. They were better than halfway to their destination. Occasionally I have dreams. I try not to dwell on them, though. I have much to be thankful for. He looked at Greels. And you? Greels frowned and looked out his window. Yeah, same for me. Dreams and stuff. Are you sleeping okay, then? Greels' face reddened. Hey, it's nothing like on the ship, if that's what you mean. It was really messing with me there. She, it, kept me up all night. I was obsessed. I couldn't sleep, but I didn't want to. It was all I could think of. That box and what was in it. That girl, except she wasn't really. It was evil, I guess. Jab raised a hand. Sorry, I, I wasn't implying anything, he shrugged. I thought you looked a little tired is all, like you're not resting well. Not uncommon for someone who's healing. Greels chuckled and seemed to relax a bit. Guess I'm still a bit defensive. I heard about, thought about, a shrug. You know, a lot. But as for my sleep, yeah, my bed last night wasn't so good. So, where are you staying? Greels shrugged. Nowhere special, just, you know, one of the shelters. For now. He smiled. Why I wanted to work. Gotta get on my own. Nobody left me much, you know? He gazed out the window again. I used to think my being locked up was more about the disease than the crime, but now I'm not so sure. It's almost like the whole thing never happened, you know? Like I only tried to steal a shuttle. He sniffed. And I'm stranded here. Jeb felt a surge of compassion. While he wasn't sure of the man, he didn't wish Greels living on the street, either. We have a spare room, he said. You could stay with us until you're on your feet. Greels' face flushed a little. I couldn't, Jeb. No way. You've done enough for me. He shook his head. I'm so beat up, man. I don't belong anywhere. Jeb sniffed. Scripture says we're all like sheep who've gone astray. He smiled. You and I are not so different. The vampires brought us both to a new place in life. I believe it isn't so much about the circumstances, but how we live in them. Greels drew quiet, then coughed. You have a strange way of looking at things. Probably I could learn a lot from being around you. 
Jeb knew he was doing the right thing here, despite his misgivings. Their hair was in control. So, will you stay with us? I think I would like that, yes. Jeb, check their progress again. Very good. I know Sarah will be pleased. She's not happy unless she's mother-henning someone. A smile. Don't tell her I said that. Greels chuckled. All right. Jeb nodded. We're at our first stop. I promise, getting out is easier than getting in. He smiled. Bring your muscles. Well, that was Chapter 8 of Amish Zombies from Space, Book 2 of Carrie Neitz's sci-fi series, Perils in Plain Space. The reader was Randy Strew, who you might recognize from our previous episode, the panel on grittier than PG-13 content. Randy was the moderator of that panel. But you can see our show notes to learn more about the series. You can find the link to get the book or the audiobook and find plenty more reviews, articles, and the complete podcast archive at lorehaven.com. As we record this, uh, we are wrapping up edits on the summer 2020 issue of Lorehaven Magazine that is still going to release, uh, we believe, by the end of June. And our cover story explores the novel For Whom the Sun Sings uh, from novelist W.A. Fulkerson. We review that story and we're actually offering a free excerpt of the novel in this free issue that you can get via email download by subscribing for free at lorehaven.com. Uh, you can also access every other issue of the webzine and get new reviews daily all the this summer. We're posting our backlog of reviews of all the other Christian-made fantastical novels uh, that our review team has come to love. All right, and let's go to our fantastic fan segment. So this is where we read your feedback, listener, whether you want to send us an email to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment on our YouTube channel, which you can find just by searching for Lorehaven, or leave us a comment on our website, lorehaven.com. And this uh, comment comes to us from Florian, who listened to episode 16. And that was our episode about the viral virus meme, the nature is healing, we are the virus. Uh, how do we discern stories that claim humans are a virus? So Florian gave some really good feedback here, Stephen. He he had his own opinion, which this is great. You know, we we want to hear some different takes on these topics. We we don't want to just hear everyone agree with us. So Florian says, "quote I wanted to give you my two cents on the topic." So I agree; those we are the virus stuff is mostly BS. A lot of the photos that circulated on social media turned out to be taken out of place or out of context. That said, there is some truth to the air and other parts of the environment temporarily improving as a result of the worldwide economic shutdown. I guess we could call that a silver lining, albeit a small one, especially since we'll probably catch back up once quarantine life is over, double pollution, etc. Personally, I wouldn't put the we are the virus people in the same category as, quote, regular environmentalists. I don't consider myself any kind of ist other than maybe a realist, but I am someone that cares deeply about the environment, as I believe you do too. Maybe I'm naive, but I don't think most environmentalists care more about the earth than about actual people. I think the majority care about the earth because of people. Because without the earth, we're nothing until we figure out a way to live on Mars. So I'm not sure you're addressing a widespread attitude. Thankfully, Twitter is not necessarily an indicator of majority opinion. End quote. Amen to that. Twitter is not real life. Twitter is not real life. <laughs> Twitter is not real life. <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah. So, so thank you, Florian. Uh, th- this is, uh, I really appreciate the feedback. It's good to bring balance to this. And yes, it's good to remember that Twitter does not represent everyone. So again, to you, our listener, if you have a different take on something we've said, please send it in. We'd, we'd love to have more of a conversation about this stuff. Next on Fantastical Truth, in our next episode, W.A. Fulkerson himself, uh, the author of that book, For Whom the Sun Sings, he will join us and he will share more about his creative process and the deep themes and some of the ideas and images in this story, which uh, just released this past spring. It follows the tale of the one person who can see in a world where everyone else has been born blind. This will be a fascinating and in-depth conversation, and we will also preview our book review from that upcoming issue of Lorehaven Magazine. Don't miss it. Meanwhile, don't get bitten by no Amish. Don't get bitten by no zombies either. Don't get contaminated. But you might also want to recall that the worst contagions just might come from within the heart of man. And join us next time to keep seeking and finding fantastical truths.